Sean Cosby, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. The new novel is Razorblade Tears. It is out today. And we are so excited. We are huge fans of Blacktop Wasteland, your first book. Can we get started by talking about Red Hill County, Virginia, where you've set both of these amazing books, Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland? Yeah. um, So Red Hill is basically an amalgamation of the three counties Mm -hmm. that surround me where I grew up in Matthews County, Virginia. Mm -hmm. I currently live in Gloucester County, Virginia. And then um, I have friends and a lot of family in Middlesex County, Virginia. And so because I'm exceedingly lazy and I don't like doing geography, instead of using one of those counties as a basis for my stories, I just pushed them all together and created one big super county, Red Hill County. And so Red Hill County is very similar to where I grew up. It's very similar. It's basically my tri-county area of my youth you know, in disguise. And so it's, uh, for me, it's been a fun base of operation, so to speak. I can manipulate the geography and the land to suit the story that I'm telling. And also it allows me to talk about certain things that are, I think, complex in a way that won't won't offend my fellow citizens. One of the great things about being a writer from a small town and still living in a small town is Almost everyone is behind you 100%. I go to the mm-hmm. grocery store now. People are like, hey, man, how's the book coming? Or when's the next book out? Or if I go you know, back before the, the pandemic and now that things are opening up a little bit again, if I go to our local bar with my best friend and we go play darts, everybody's excited to see you. I'm getting free drinks. So that's <laughs> great. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so, you know, you, when you go to, when I go out to eat, it's, it's such a great rapport with the fellow citizens because I'm telling stories that, I hope resonate with them that I feel are important to talk about. But at the same time, if I take Red Hill County and I talk about the police there, I talk about the mm-hmm. racial issues there. I'm not talking about actual Matthews County or actual Gloucester County or Middlesex County. I think there are uh, I think there are reporters and journalists and, and people way smarter than I am that are able to talk about that in you know in the current zeitgeist. But I do feel like as a writer, part of my job is to discuss those things and, and talk about how they affect not just the plot, but the characters and, and the people who live in this fictional county. And when we're talking about the people here, we're talking also about a giant class divide. There are people who are very, very comfortable mm-hmm. in this community. And then there are people who are barely making it. Jobs have disappeared. Factories mm-hmm. have moved. Ike and Buddy Lee, who are the protagonists of the new novel, Razorblade Tears, their sons have been murdered. Their sons are married to each other. Isaiah Mm -hmm. and Derek, they have been murdered. And when Buddy Lee and Ike realize that no one is really looking into this, they decide to take matters into their own hands. And they both had very difficult relationships with their sons. Did you start with the story idea or did you start with these characters? Did you start with Ike and Buddy Lee? Part of the inspiration for Razorblade Tears was I had a very close personal friend who's about my age. So he'll be 47 in a few months, I'll be 48. Uh, we grew up together. We knew each other. He's an African-American person from the South. And he didn't come out to his family until he was like 41, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And it did not go well. It wasn't, it wasn't very pleasant. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to him after we were having a beer. And he said, you know, if I was a hairdresser or I was a, a, a musician that led a church choir, they wouldn't have a problem with me being gay. You know, they would let it they would let it pass. And then he also said, he said, maybe I should have just kept it to myself. And that was just I can't imagine how devastating that was for him. But for me as a friend, it was devastating because I, I felt like, you know, it's 20 at the time. It was 2019. I was like, it's 2019. Mm-hmm. Why can't you be the full version of who you are? Right. And why can't you be the full version of the man that you want to be? 
And, you know, a lot of their arguments were the arguments that a lot of people have heard over the years. You know, it's against God or it's socially. It's, they didn't feel like it was uh, respectable or so on and so forth or what have you. Any any of the excuses that people make. And so that just stuck in my head for a long time. And I wanted to talk about the dichotomous situ, uh, situation in small town communities and in the black community about this kind of parallel track that LGBTQ plus rights and civil rights for black and brown Americans seems to be on and that they are, they intersect more than some people want to accept. I feel like that was something that just really, it just, it really stuck with me. It was something that really troubled me. And so I came up with this idea, how would I talk about it? And I didn't want to talk about it from the point of view of an LGBTQ character because I felt like that's someone else's truth to tell, that's mm-hmm. someone else's story to tell. But I did want to talk about it from the point of view of people that I knew who I think have the capacity to change. Unfortunately for Ike and Buddy Lee, it took the death of their sons for them to even entertain the idea of changing. And for some people, that is what it takes, unfortunately. And so all of that mixed together made me want to talk about it. Then it was creating these two characters and kind of creating a situation where they are characters who are have quite deep similarities, but also quite deep differences. At first, it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like they're going to get along terribly well. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> and I wanted it to, I wanted to establish that. I mean, I, I think a part of this. Uh, process. I was inspired by a lot of different things. One of the things I was inspired by was the theme or the idea of the movie The Defiant Ones, um, where these two men, a racist and a black man, are forced to coexist. And by coexisting, they're forced to learn. I didn't want to take that whole cloth idea, but I did want to take the idea of a black southerner and a white southerner. Mm-hmm. And the almost intrinsic, instinctual separation that that exists between them and basically force them to be together and force them to recognize that they are more alike for good or ill, you know, than they would care to uh, admit, but also really talk about the differences that are out of their hands, you know, for Ike being a black man in the South and how much his life is different than Buddy Lee's and, and Buddy Lee, you know, learning about that and understanding that in a way that he was, that he was honest about it. And both of them are very honest out to that, like Blacktop Wasteland, Razorblade Tears is incredibly cinematic. How do you start? Yeah, um, for me, the way I like to, to to start is I tell myself a story. I don't mm-hmm. outline and I don't fly by the seat of my pants. I write myself a very much stream of consciousness synopsis. And mm-hmm. it's basically me telling myself the story. So for mm-hmm. like for Razorblade, it was me sitting down and writing Ike and Buddy Lee are two fathers whose sons are married. They haven't accepted their sons uh, for being gay and they don't have a good relationship with their children. And now these children are dead. And so it's just a stream of consciousness of me telling myself what happens. And once I get to the end of that, it gives me a, a roadmap to how I want to see the book. Um, mm-hmm. As far as the cinematic qualities of it, I mean, part of that is I love movies. I'm a cinephile. I'm a huge movie fan. But another part of that is that's just the way I, I see the story in my head. Right. And so I take cinematic cues and meld that with the way the, the movie plays and unspools in my head. And so there is a lot of uh, close ups in the in the in the prose, so to speak. Um, there are a lot of scenes where I'm, I'm focusing in on somebody's face or I'm pulling out for the macro view of a large explosion or a fight or an accident or, or, or somewhat something like that. And then again, that's just partly my love of cinema and partly just the way the, the story emerges from my mind. 
you write in really tight, short chapters too. There are a lot of chapters in these books, but everything's always pushing forward, moving forward. Was that a deliberate choice or is that just how the story showed up? I think it was 50-50 because I, I like to push the action as much as possible. I come from the short story background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a lot of short stories before I wrote any, any books. And for me, each chapter is like a little mini short story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's, a, a, you know, there's the the problem, the advancement of the problem, and then the denouement. So that kind of translated into the way I write books. That you know, each chapter is its own little enclosed event that's a part of a greater whole. Also, when you're trying to write a thriller and trying to write action, I think you know, there's short chapters help drive the action, but there are also long chapters where Ike and Buddy Lee are talking and they're uh, ruminating about their issues and what they're doing and and what kind of men they were and what kind of fathers they were and do they have the capacity to change and also i tried to do with Razorblade, i tried to give each of them every three chapters is ike buddy lee and then buddy lee and ike together and i tried mm-hmm. to do that on purpose i wanted mm-hmm. ike to have his scene and buddy lee to have his scene and then what happens in those two scenes creates this third scene where they have to work together and uh because i wanted them to both be equals on the stage i wanted them to get, both get screen time Um, Because ultimately, the story is about both of them. And Mm -hmm. it's about what they have to do to be better men and and be better fathers in death to their children than they were in life. And they really are both the product of Red Hill County. Ike has seen a little more success since he's gotten out of prison. So it's been, as he says in the book, 16 years since he killed a man, 11 years since he's been in a fight, and he's got his own landscaping business. He's married. His wife is very successful. They own their own house. They are on a very different side of the coin than Buddy Lee, who's living in a trailer and is quite alone in the world and had shaped up enough to hold a job, but then lost it when he wasn't given time to go to his son's funeral. And, and his boss at the time was like, well, mm-hmm. too bad, pal. You've, you've got to go then. We, we just don't do that. Do you start with your character's history or do you start with who they are in the moment and work <laughs> backwards from there? This is going to sound really weird, but for me, when I write a character, I know they're going to be the protagonist. Uh-huh. I write really long biographies that never make it into the book. I did that with Bug. I, I did it with Buddy Lee, and I, I'm doing that with a character I'm working on now, a book I'm working on. I like to write complex biographies so that I have that background. And so I may make mention of something that doesn't seem to be very important to the plot, but I know it means a lot to this character. I know what it means to this this person. Um, and so there's a whole biography of Ike, you know, how he grew up. How did he get in trouble with the law? How did mm-hmm. he become part of a, like a sort of a drug dealing game? Why he made the decision to try to go straight? The same thing with Buddy Lee, you know, where he came from, his fractured family, his half, his multitude of half brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and, and why he feels the way he feels about certain things. And I wanted also to have a character with Ike where I wanted to show so often in the media, there's this idea of ex-cons and ex-cons of a certain background who are just recidivism statistics waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to show the, the possibility of someone who can change their life, who can be a better person in one respect and still be having more failing in the other. So if you looked at life from the outside looking in, you was like, wow, he came out of jail. He started his landscaping business. He hires other ex-cons. He's worked himself up to where he's owned a business and they own a little small house. His wife is a nurse. You know, they're middle, lower middle class people who are really doing what everybody says you're supposed to do. 
to grab your portion of the American dream. But at the same time, he's still a horribly broken man inside. He's still horribly distrustful of people. Every day is a struggle for him. Um, and then also, now it's not even talking about his very fractured relationship with his only son. His inability to just accept his son, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and accept that his son is who he is. His son has someone in his life that loves him. And it shouldn't, it's none of Ike's business and it shouldn't matter to him who, what, who that person is, as long as they're treating his son right. And even his wife sort of calls. And that's one thing I also wanted to do with him. And also I wanted to show, you know, that that class divide, it's, it's weird. That class divide is different depending on what your racial background is. So right. for all of Ike's success, as he tells right. Buddy Lee in the book, he still gets pulled over by the police for driving a nice mm-hmm. truck. He mm-hmm. still has a hard time getting jobs and bidding on jobs for his business. And even though Buddy Lee is living in a trailer and he's pretty much an alcoholic and he just lost his job, he may still land on his feet. You know, there's a safety net for him that doesn't exist for Ike. And so every day for Ike is a struggle to stay above water, even though it may not look like that. Mm -hmm. But having said that, he still is someone who is, is, is holding on to a narrow minded, ignorant point of view when it comes to his son and his son's husband. And so that's, that was the thing that I wanted to do was show that, you know, even though Buddy Lee may seem down on his luck and Ike may seem like he's up on his feet, they both have a lot of growth they need to do. And they both need to look at themselves and, and be very honest and critical about themselves. It's also very easy for both of them to slip back into extreme acts of violence. It's mm-hmm. an exciting book. It's, it's a page. It's the very definition of a page turner. You may not necessarily want to read it while you're eating a sandwich in some cases. There are some things that happen that are, <laughs> which as a reader, I totally appreciate. But, you know, sometimes you might not actually want a snack while you're reading. You are very detailed and very visceral. And, and it's great because it's true to the story. It's incredibly true to the story. It's very organic. Well, for me, violence is important because violence, I feel like violence should have consequences. It should always have consequences. You know, I grew up reading a lot of, for lack of a better word, Pulp Fiction, Dime Store novels. I used to read a bunch of this series called the Mac Boleyn series, which is just an incredibly hyper-masculine, everybody dies except Mac type of book. And very rarely does the the violence have consequences. And um, I used to be a bouncer at a bar. And I've seen more than my share of bar fights. And, you know, there I wanted... I want the violence in my books to carry weight because I think Mm -hmm. if it doesn't carry weight, then it doesn't move the narrative and it doesn't move the narrative and doesn't belong in there. And because Ike and Buddy Lee are both men who are very accustomed with violence and they're very used to handing out and taking, taking it. I wanted that to be sort of a metaphor for their rage. You know, Mm -hmm. their sons are dead and nothing is going to change that. And not only do they feel guilty, but they're incredibly, incredibly angry as anyone would be. And I think what I would like for readers to take away from that is if you read that book, I'm not saying or suggesting that you should behave the way I can buddy lead it. But if you have a child or you have someone that you love or someone that you're very close to, I wanted you to at least relate to the rage that they feel and the anger and the sense of helplessness and that the sense of divine retribution that they um, uh, uh, seem to embody. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do know the books are violent um, and I don't, shy away from that because mm-hmm. I think, again, if you're talking about people who have lost a loved one and people who are used to dole, doling out violence, then violent things are going to happen. Um, that's not an endorsement of that, but it's just in my effort to make the story as realistic 
as possible. Um, and uh, I had an English teacher one time that told me, I asked him about, you know, what are the rules for writing? What can I write about? What can I write about? Where's the line? And he said, you can write about anything that you want as long as you earn it, as long as your story earns that. And the way you earn that is creating characters that people care about, is creating plots and situations that mean something to the reader. You know, that gives you a currency. And then you can spend that currency however you see fit. So I don't think there are any rules about that. I don't think everybody has a different line. I have my own line. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Deaver has spoken about it very famously that, you know, he doesn't hurt animals or hurt children. And that's something I kind of agree with to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But everybody has to define that for themselves. But as long as you feel like you've earned the right in your story by being completely 100 percent honest, then you can write about as much violence or a little violence as you like. In my opinion, even though both Ike and Buddy Lee realized sort of late that they loved their sons and wish they had done things differently. And this was their sort of way to make it up to them. Family is also leverage. Family is mm-hmm. how the bad guys get to Ike, how they get to Be- mm-hmm. Buddy Lee. It's how you up the stakes as the narrative mm-hmm. moves forward, even though both Ike and Buddy Lee seem to be have very fractured relationships with mm-hmm. other members of their family. I mean, for instance, Ike even says at the funeral that that really the only people who are there are Isaiah and Derek's friends, that no one from mm-hmm. Ike's family has come because of homophobia. And what does the future look like for the members of these families and these communities? Do they see now what Ike and Buddy Lee have done? And do they want to be closer to that? Or, or does the rest of the family change? I think it's interesting. That's an interesting question because, you know, um, there's a famous William Faulkner quote about the South that mm-hmm. the past is never dead. It's not even really the, it's not even really the past. And I think uh, that bears rel- relevance to the idea of family mm-hmm. and family, the, the, the complicated and, you know, uh, uh, Byzantine interconnections that exist in the family Mm -hmm. and i could see maybe ike's family coming around a little bit but not a lot because each individual in that family has already had a preconceived notion of the way they see things ike is the type of person because ike is the type of person that would force them to come around if he had to they may but i think with buddy lee's family it's so much more divisive because I think, as I mentioned, Buddy Lee has a lot of half brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. That there's not a huge family unit there, so I think it would be more difficult for them to come around. For me, the book is so intrinsically southern because it's about family. The, the foundational principles of southern narrative is family, a connection to the land, being haunted by the past, the the incredible effect of religion. I think Flannery O'Connor said that the South is Christ haunted, um, and I think it's haunted by the fact that they don't. For many years and in many places, for a, a place that purports to be so wrapped up in religion and so wrapped up in Christianity, they don't live up to the ideals of Christianity. And I don't talk about it as much in Razorblade. There's a scene in the beginning of the funeral where uh, I confronts the minister about his sermon um, in which he called uh, he basically called Isaiah and Derek abominations. But in the same breath said, well, you know, it's possible for them to be saved, even though they live in an abominable life. And I taste umbrage with that. And so for me as a Southern writer, all of that is a part of the the melange that I I use when I write. And so 
that idea of family and family dynamics shifting as the book comes to an end, I think it's a difficult question because I think, like I said, there are members of Ike's family who may see what has happened and realize that life is too short and times is too brief. We're on this planet too in, in too brief a time to uh, to hold on to some kind of archaic moral superiority or uh, moral narrow-mindedness. But at the same time, there are people that hold on to that because that's all they have. And so I'd be interested maybe to revisit that one day, maybe drop a Ike or Buddy Lee in as a cameo in a future project and see how things went. Uh, I almost did that with Bug uh, from Blacktop Wasteland. I really, in the original first draft, he makes a cameo as a tow truck driver. And I had Buddy Lee comment. I didn't, I didn't name him, but I had Buddy Lee comment about his, uh, his flat gun, dead gun, gunfighter eyes, but he didn't, it didn't make it to the second and final draft. But it's kind of cool to have a Red Hill County shared universe. <laughs> I have to say, when Detective La Plata showed up again, I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I, I mean, like I like it. <laughs> and it took me a minute to realize that it was him again. I was like, oh, right, you. Okay, but it makes perfect sense that he would be the yeah. detective in this community. And, of course, he would be this sort of overlapping connection with these men. I mean, it's something, it's a point you make in both books that because these communities are small, these towns are small, this is how, I mean, for instance, Buddy Lee pulls out a very important piece of information sort of about two thirds of the way through the book. He figures out, a, and I don't want to spoil it for readers because it, it is a moment where you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense that he's the person to figure it out because his son figured it out. That's how tiny mm-hmm. this community is. And he's the one. Mm-hmm. And and Ike was not necessarily the guy who was going to put those, to connect those points. But boy, when Buddy Lee puts it together and he <laughs> jumps into action. And again, I, I, I really do want people to be able to, to have that experience. But men like Ike and Buddy Lee and Bug, they set off the change in their communities to a certain extent. But does that... Do they keep changing? Do they keep evolving? Or do they hit a certain point where the society and the community and the town is just what it is? And do they hit a wall? Or are they allowed to go beyond? Uh, Man, I certainly hope not. I certainly hope they are able to advance and change and continue to evolve. Um, And just that point you were making about Buddy Lee. Another part of that, uh, about the piece that he puts together, illustrates the difference in their community. Mm -hmm. Because Buddy Lee is a member of the white Southern community in a small town. And because he's a member of that white Southern community, he has access to information that, that Ike doesn't. Right. You know, and so he's able to put together a piece that, you know, Ike isn't able to put together, not because he can't see how the pieces fit, but because he doesn't have all the pieces in his hands. Right. And Buddy Lee does. Um, and so, but yeah, I hope they continue to evolve. You know, there's, for anybody who's read Black Tower Wasteland, the way it ends is kind of bleak, but it's funny. I'll, I'll say this. I've gotten a lot of emails from angry emails from people that read <laughs> Black South Wasteland. It's like, I can't believe Bug abandoned his family. It's like the end of, uh, of There Will Be Blood. I'm abandoning my boy. Um, but I was like, is that the way you read it? Because that's not the way I read it. That's not what happens in my mind. But that's the wonderful thing about writing. Everybody can see it mm-hmm. a different way. With Ike and Buddy Lee, I hope that they continue to evolve. Because for me, in the beginning of the book, they exist in a very stagnated place. Mm. They're not changing because they don't have to. Even with Ike, with, with Isaiah and Derek dead in front of them and, and you know, matching caskets, they're not driven to change. 
because they don't have to. What drives them to change is their desire for revenge, um, mm-hmm. their desire for uh, redemption. Mm-hmm. And once you begin the process of change, I think it's, I think it's the opposite of entropy. I think it just continues. I think it's like, you know, it's like dropping a, um, dropping a, you know, a, a, a weight into a black hole. It continues on forever. So I hope at the end of the book, when my story stops and their story exists in some alternate universe, I hope that they do change and grow and uh, become the best version of themselves that they can. Because not everybody gets that opportunity. Not everybody gets the op- that impetus to move from stagnation to evolution. I think it's hard too, especially because they are men of a certain age in a certain kind of community, that for them to acknowledge their vulnerability or to acknowledge their emotions, they don't necessarily have a starting point, but it also can be dangerous for them. It can be physically dangerous for them. Yeah. Unfortunately, because you know that's where the title of the book comes from. For, for Ike, crying is just like razor blades slicing mm-hmm. his face. He, he literally can't open himself up enough to do. He's been so closed off and not just because he's done time. I know a lot of men who have you know never been you know within shouting distance of a prison, but they're imprisoned by this idea of masculinity, of rural Americana masculinity, especially, mm-hmm. you know, that, that exists in, in, in the Bible Belt. And this idea, you know, I grew up, <laughs> it's not funny, but I grew up with very masculine men around me, my uncles and my grandfather, even though they could be tender. My grandfather was one of the kindest people I knew, but he also was the type of dude that could literally smash his finger with a ball peen hammer and not cry out and wrap it up in gauze and drive himself to the hospital. You know, this, they, they put a preeminence on physical, mental toughness. And in some cases, like my grandfather, they were able to balance it. And in other cases, like other men that I knew growing up, they weren't. And, and so I think that for me, as an African-American man, that comes with an extra dose of baggage because there's a part of society that always already doesn't want to acknowledge you as a human being. And so then they don't want to acknowledge you as a man. And so you become incredibly protective of your masculinity. You become incredibly protective of that idea of masculinity. And so you're not just physically tough. You're incredibly you become incredibly mentally tough. The problem with that is if you don't balance it out, you become closed off to any kind of emotion. So you're not able to open up about grief and about your fears and your insecurities and then show any fragility. And I think if anything, Raising My Tears is about grief. It's about vulnerability. And how do we get to that place where you can maintain whatever your idea of masculinity is and yet still be open and not be so insular and be closed off? I mean, I, I believe there is toxic masculinity, but I also believe there's tragic masculinity. And I can buddy Lee and to a lesser extent bug are versions of tragic masculinity where it's not only an outwardly negative effect that they have on the community around them, but it's tragic for them because it's tragic for everything that they lose because of that idea that they have about what is toughness, what is masculinity, what does it mean to be a man? The things that they are willing to sacrifice to maintain that facade. And in both cases, they're forced to change their interpretation of that by outside forces. And again, I hope that that change is permanent. I hope it's ongoing, but you know, for a lot of people it isn't. And so I wrote that book. I wrote both books to talk about that. I, I'm a I'm a son of the South. I'm a I was born and raised in in Virginia and the Carolinas. And to paraphrase James Baldwin, I love the South. I love growing up and climbing magnolia trees and swimming in creeks and catching crawfish and uh, you know raising a garden with my granddad. And that's some of my great memories. But because I love the South, I reserve the right to criticize it and criticize it pretty harshly because I believe it can rise up 
to a better to the better nature of its better angel. And so that's what Razorblade Tears was about. That what partly what Black Child Wasteland is about. It talks about masculinity and the inheritance of violence and what that means. The sins of the father being visited upon the, the, the sons and the daughters. But it's also about the South and about the idea that some people have that the South is the sole provenance of, you know, neo-Confederate apologists. And it isn't. My family, I can trace my family back to the, the mid 1860s. You know, and, and they have bled and sweat and cried on the same land that descendants of Confederates have. They have no right to claim this as their their land. They have no right to claim this region as their own. And they don't have any right to define what being Southern means. And so with my writing, I try to talk about that in both ways, large and subtle. Can I go back to Blacktop Wasteland for a second? Because something you said there about yeah. fathers and sons. How do you think Bugs' kids are going to turn out? How do you think Javon and, and Darren are going to turn out? I hope. Well, I'll, I'll put it like this: there, there are talks about a sequel, uh, and I've thought about it. Mm-hmm. I'd love to visit them again in ten years. Javon will be twenty-two. Darren will be uh, nineteen, yeah. and, and see where they are, and see what what happens to them. And and like you said, did Bug continue to change? What happened to him and Kia? Were they able to repair their relationship? Where is Booney? Did anything, did Bug ever get any fallback from what happened? I'd love to see if he was able to break the chain um, mm. started by his father. Mm. And and was he able to repair, even if him and Kia don't make it, was he able to repair or salvage his relationship with his sons? Um, but there's a lot of, I think, a lot of obstacles to that. And not just on his side, I think. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who hasn't read Black Dot Wasteland, but things happen in Black Dot Wasteland <laughs> that some of them may be irreversible. And especially when it comes to Javon and, mm-hmm. and Darren. And so I don't know how they will react to that. I'm interested in finding out, though. I may, you know, we may go back to uh, the Montage family and see who's standing in 10 years. I hope I would- that they grow up and I hope that they, they have a, a decent relationship. But I don't know. That makes for a boring book. So. <laughs> I would very much like to read whatever book that takes. I, I just, I've been thinking about both of those boys quite a lot, you know, and especially too in light that Ike is never going to have a chance to repair his relationship with Isaiah, mm-hmm. his son, but his granddaughter is living with him now and maybe he has a chance. And he even mm-hmm. says at one point in the book, I, I wish I hadn't had a son. I, I don't think I was prepared to be the father to a son. And I do mm-hmm. think that for some men, it is tricky to parent Mm -hmm. a son and for whatever that Mm -hmm. legacy is. But I'm hoping Ike enjoys his do-over. The one thing about Ike that I like and and I like about Buddy Lee is that even though they couldn't be honest with themselves, they were brutally honest with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that changed them. I I think their ability to call each other out for their BS made a difference. Sometimes it's hard to be self-analytical but if you grow to be friends with someone, which I think they become friends over the course of the book, mm-hmm. and that friend can hold you accountable. And I think they hold each other accountable. There's a scene toward the end where Buddy Lee is talking to Ike about his grandfather when they were young, when he was a kid, and they'd watch Ten Commandments. And uh, there's a scene in Ten Commandments. Anybody who watched like I did at the grandma's house over the uh, Easter holiday, there's a scene in Ten Commandments where uh, there's some black actors walking across the set and one of the little kids says in the movie, oh, look, grandfather Nubians. And I tells, I mean, not I, excuse me, Buddy Lee tells a story about his grandfather making a racist joke during the course of that movie and how it's hard for him to 
marry his love for his grandfather with the realization that his grandfather was a racist. And he looks to Ike for some kind of, you know, to absolve him. And Ike is like, hey, man, you know, at least you're learning, you know, and, and, and Buddy Lee makes this comment. Yeah, it's pretty late in the day to be learning. And Ike makes sort of a joke. Well, the day ain't over yet. And I think that's true for both of them. And, you know, and I think that I think that they're able to help each other, you know. And so toward the end of the book, when, uh, you know, you know, with Ariana, with his granddaughter, which is funny. Uh, I had some people pick up on this for three quarters of the book. Ike won't call her his granddaughter. He calls her the girl. She's the girl. She's Ariana. She's the girl. She's the, the little girl, that child. And it isn't toward the end. And, and when things are really going haywire, when he finally calls her his granddaughter and he, he finally accepts this mantle, this second chance um, that he's been given. And so I would hazard a guess that Ike and Ariana's relationship is going to end up being better initially than, um, than Bug and Javon and Derek. I, I just have this this hint. I have this just this hunch that it's going to be better. Is it easier to write the violence and the set pieces and the action scenes than it is to write about human vulnerability <laughs> and family structure? Oh God, yes. <laughs> I can, I can write a fight scene. I can bust somebody upside the head with a bottle of beer day in and day out. But to have those hard, honest cops, I'll tell you. I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll, I'll give you an anecdote about that. Mm-hmm. So the original ending of Blacktop Wasteland is markedly different than the one that got published. In the original ending, and I can say it because it's different, so no, it doesn't matter. In the original ending, Bug doesn't uh, show up at the hospital. He leaves a note for Kia in uh, in the hospital room. Anybody who's read the book knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. He leaves a note for her, and he basically says everything that he says at the end of the book. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a, I don't think I'm going to be a good father to these boys. I wish you the best. I hope, you know. And I had a couple people read it, and one of my friends, who's a great writer, two of my friends, actually, who are great writers, Nikki Dolson and Kelly Garrett, both <laughs> called me. I was like, if you end that book like that, I will hate Bug forever. He got to man up. He's got to own what has happened. And I realized as a writer, the way I ended it that way, because I wasn't ready to deal with it. I was mm-hmm. afraid to have that hard, honest conversation, that emotionally volatile conversation about what has happened. But what ended up what it, what it ended up being was a way better ending because I forced myself to do it and I made myself confront it. And by making myself confront it, I made Bug confront it. And I learned that just because your character is your protagonist and he's your hero or antihero doesn't mean that people can't call him to be accountable or her to be accountable. And sometimes that makes the, the greatest or the best drama when somebody pushes aside all their protestations and is like, no, you're full of it. This is what happened. And so that's what ends up happening in, in Blacktop. And I think it was difficult in Raceway. You know, it's always difficult to tell the truth. But I think that's the job of a novelist, of a writer. We make up lies to find the truth. And if you're not telling the truth, if you're not being 100 percent honest, then you're doing a disservice to yourself and to the reader. Dennis Lehane is a fan of yours. Lee Child, Stephen King, Walter Mosley, Laura Lippman, all fans of yours. Who are some of your big influences? Oh, man, everybody you just mentioned. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, Walter Mosley is probably the biggest influence because with Walter, you know, I grew up reading a lot of different things. I didn't read just crime fiction. I grew up reading science fiction and horror and and, uh, slice of life literary fiction. One of my favorite books is A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley. But what Walter did, for me as an African-American writer was to show that you could tell the stories 
of our community, of our people, of our of our history, of our past, of our present, and that people would get it. I just I was always afraid when I started writing, like nobody's going to get what I'm trying to do with this small Southern town, these African-American and white Americans that live side by side, but are separated by miles and miles of history and recrimination. I don't think people are going to understand it from an African-American point of view, because, you know, I use, you know, I don't think it's a term, but I, I see everything through the African-American gaze because that's who I am. That's it's intrinsically a part of me. And I didn't know if a larger community or a larger group of people would see it. And with Walter Mosley, he wasn't the first African-American to write detective fiction. But for me, he was the first one that I read, you know, voraciously. And the Easy Rollins books and then later on, the Fearless Jones and, and all those other books, it just showed that you could write about this from an African-American perspective in a way that's not pandering and in a way that's not condescending and in a way that is it, it's true to who you are. So he was a huge influence. But then also there are other writers that I, I thematically was influenced by. Uh, Daniel Woodrell, who coined the phrase country noir, was a huge influence on me. Um, Raymond Chandler, who was a, one of the founding fathers of the noir movement, was a huge influence. But also, like uh, again, going back to the Southern aspect of it or the rural aspect of it, Ernest J. Gaines was a huge influence. I was a, such a fan of his. Um, I never got to meet him. I'm so sorry that because I loved his work. He spoke to me in a way that, say, for instance, a great writer like Richard Wright didn't. They spoke to me in different ways, in, in different ways. And so I, that was a great influence on me. I guess the more recent uh, writers that I'm influenced by, people that really impressed upon. I have a, there's a writer that I really like. They made a movie out of his book recently, Don, Donald Ray Pollock. They made a movie uh, the devil all the time starring Tom Holland. And, uh, and I've read that book more than once. I've read that book like eight or nine times. And that book is just, it is this incredibly moving existential indictment of post-war America in a way that's not preachy. It's not a sermon. It's just really raw and rugged. And it's just lays it out here. Here are the people. Here are the people that they told us in school were living, you know, these Ozzie and Harriet lives. And they weren't. They were just as bad as the people today but they were also just as good. And that book is really, that book changed something in me. It really did. I'll tell you one more person that's not a, a novelist that really influenced me. Well, two people, uh, two screenwriters. Uh, Virgil Williams, who co-wrote the screenplay for the movie Mudbound, and Taylor Sheridan, who wrote the screenplay for Hella High Water. Both of those guys talk about masculinity in a way that was very palatable to me, in a way that I understood, in a way that I felt like I could add to that uh, pantheon. And so they were huge influences too. But I mean, it, it, like the list of my influences is a mile long and it'll take us three days to go through. So <laughs> You cover a lot of ground in Red Hill County. You cover a lot of ground. <laughs> Have we missed anything? Is there anything that, that you really want listeners to know <laughs> about your work and about Ike and Buddy Lee and their world and, and even Bug? I think the biggest thing that I would like for people to take away is like, you know, don't get me wrong. I love writing crime fiction. I love writing fight scenes and shootouts and car chases and, you know, bar fights and, and, and mystery and planning a heist or so on and so forth. But I think the biggest thing that I want people to take away is that everyone falls short of grace, but everyone is able to be redeemed. I, I really believe that. But you have to do the work. You know, redemption is not handed to you on a silver platter. It, it's handed to you in a box and it's all broken apart and you have to put it back together. You have to fix, fix the pieces. Um, so if you're willing to do the work, then you can fix the pieces. And I think that's true for anybody. I don't think anyone is beyond redemption. I really don't. Now, that being said, you, the person seeking redemption, have to accept 
that there are certain things and certain people who don't have to accept your uh, redemptive path. And that's fine because redemption isn't about other people. It's about you. And so I really believe that. I truly believe that. So even if people around you don't accept that you've changed, that doesn't matter. All that matters is that you truly did change. And so that's a big part of my work and what I uh, I write about a lot. You know, I'm working on something now that's going to take place in a neighboring county. It's not going to be Red Hill, but uh, I'm working on something now that's going to take place in a neighboring county. And redemption is a big part of that. Uh, people make mistakes. And so um, I think redemption is, is a it's, it's a very fine thing to seek, but it's even finer if you work hard to achieve it. Like Jonathan Edwards says, we're all sinners in the hands of an angry God, but I think redemption is possible and redemption is a very fine thing. Um, but I think the finer thing is to truly, honestly seek it. And that seems like a really great place to end the interview. Sean Cosby, thank you so much. This was great. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 